This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for us to check in with Raji Silhal, our morning contributor. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. How are you doing this morning? You know what? I'm feeling rather optimistic. And I, I don't know why. <laughs> like, but I thought maybe it was all those stories about, you know, things that we are now going to be able to do in the near future that makes me think like, okay, we're perhaps we're really am we really are starting this return to normal. Yeah, I can't even fathom going to a regular thing like a like a hockey game. I can't even imagine right now what that would feel like or to go to a show. I was talking on the weekend to uh, the head of um, the rickshaw theater. And of course, like the kinds of shows they have at the rickshaw theater are not really the kind you want to be seated for, but people still that's what they want to do. They've shown up ready to just experience live music with one another to be out and have that experience is so special. So I think, yeah, gosh. uh, What about Festival of Lights? Like yesterday I was talking about this with Gord that the Van Dusen Festival of Lights is coming back for the holiday season. You've got the Bright Nights, the train at Stanley Park. I can definitely see myself buying tickets to go to Van Dusen for sure. What about you? 100% 100% for sure. If, especially if it's outside, if it's anything outdoors, I am going without a, a, any worries whatsoever. Um, with stuff inside, yeah, Simi, I'm going to be a little bit cautious still, but still optimistic. So I'm eager to get out there. I'm just going to be a little bit cautious if it's inside. Right. So there's events and you mentioned the Canucks game. That's going to be a big one. Uh, there's also travel. Did you see this Air Canada story? This is incredible because so far it's been easier to leave Canada than to come back. And of course, Canada still requires testing on the way back. But uh, Air Canada, if you are an Aeroplan member, you are uh, allowed to get this really cool test that uh, is being issued by uh, their company that they've been working with to do the COVID testing. And the details of it are pretty, I mean, it sounds pretty simple, Simi. It's about $200, gets rid of the whole inconvenience of having to find a lab to do it. And then you get a very quick result in apparently 20 to 45 minutes, which is just wild. So how it works is you pack the test when you leave Canada and, uh, you know, you take the test in front of a healthcare worker, like a, a nurse, and you upload the results. You take a picture and upload right. the results. And we should say you take that test kind of via your mobile phone. So you kind of video conference with somebody yeah. in the company. You don't have to go somewhere. This, I, I feel like this would be huge for a lot of people for travel because that idea of, oh, if I go down there, I have to find some place to take the test and make sure I get the results back on time. This eliminates that. 
Yeah. For myself, I was thinking, you know, why haven't we already had something like this in place? Exactly. Uh, because it just makes it so much smoother. That whole having to, you know, arrive somewhere and go, okay, where's the nearest uh, place that can, you know, lab or, or pharmacy that's going to, you know, facilitate this. It's just that huge added inconvenience for people with kids stuff like that, it's never quick, right? So if someone tells you it takes an extra hour, you're like, right, okay, so I should plan half a day to get a COVID test <laughs> to find a place that's going to do it for me. So this is like, whew, I feel like this is a game changer. I feel like it is too, that I will people be more inclined to travel if you don't have to worry about that? And it is a test that is like kind of certified. It's by Air Canada, so you know it's acceptable for the return to Canada because, you know, sometimes not all tests are and takes that kind of concern out of it. I do wonder like you though, Raji, and this was a big thing for travel. Why wasn't this, all of this kind of more organized in the past? You know, like if you wanted to go to a location, why weren't they for the interest of tourism saying, Hey, we're going to help you make sure you get your test and make sure you get everything ready for you to be able to go home. It just feels like they left everybody to their own devices. Yeah. And then this one is, you know, only available to Aeroplan members. Well, I, I'm not an Aeroplan member. I but could you just better sign believe, up. It's not a big deal. <laughs> well, I would sign up. I would sign up no matter what, because <laughs> even if they want to charge me an arm and a leg to sign up for something that would just make all of this so much smoother to travel. I will travel because of this. It's really that clear for me. Oh, yeah. This just, I need some help, Simi. I've got little ones. I need, you need help to go streamlining. <laughs> Yeah, I need to go somewhere and I need help just streamlining the process, make it as easy for me as possible. This is <laughs> what I've been, try. I've talked to Claire Newell about this too in the last few weeks where I've been wondering about that, like the big hotel, the big tourist destinations in the States, right? Why not, why not advertise that? Why not say, come on down Canadians, we will help you with your testing, we will help. And I just thought, well, they weren't very, maybe they were just all thinking that it's going to end soon and we don't have to do this. So there have been some, Simi, I understand in the Caribbean, there have been um, some hotels and resorts that have done something like that, but they've not marketed it really well. And again, I don't know those specific hotels and resorts, and I don't know if I can right. trust them nearly as much as I can, something that I'm a sucker for branding, hey? Like you know, it's Canadian. Like Canada stamp on it, and yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm like, is that a maple leaf? Okay. I trust that. <laughs> well, see, that's good to know then. So it makes Raji more inclined to travel this new initiative. I wonder if that's the case for other people too. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. Thanks for that, Raji. Hey, thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Could you use sick leave at your job? There is a startlingly high number of people who just don't have that ability still, after all we've been through in the pandemic, to be able to call in and say, I've got a sniffle, I've got you know a cough, I'm not coming in to work today, and know that they'll still get paid because they have sick leave. Well, the BC Federation of Labour is continuing to push the BC government for this. They want 10 paid days of sick leave. They were hosting rallies on Surrey and Burnaby. This was yesterday afternoon. So there's a lot to talk about here because the provincial government is kind of still ironing out some of these details on a provincial sick leave policy. Joining us now for more on this is the Provincial Minister of Labour, Harry Baines. Thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me, Simi. So where are you at in that process right now? Well, uh, I mean, we have, uh, uh, we are listening. I think we have uh, two phases of consultation process. Uh, we just finished one, yes, the last one yesterday. 
the first phase was to advise us uh, what is available and uh, how many days the workers uh, have uh, in, in uh, different uh, organizations. We found that over half of uh, the workers in BC don't have any paid sick leave provision available to them. That's a lot. And that is a lot. And you're talking about over a million workers. And, uh, and then, then I think the second phase was, what do we do with what we learned from the phase one? So we put out um, an option of three days, five days, or 10 days. And uh, that phase also closed uh, yesterday. And uh, now we will be analyzing what we heard from uh, different organizations, business associations, board of trades, unions, healthcare professionals, all have provided very valuable input, and we will be analyzing all of that, and then we will be making a decision how many days and what model we will be choosing, because at the end of the day, there will be paid sick leave provision available to all workers in British Columbia starting January 2022. How many days? Uh, that decision will be made after we analyze what we heard right. uh, during our consultations in December. Well, kind of coming down to the wire on that one, right? Like, is, there, is that enough notice for employers then to institute these policies? Well, we passed the legislation uh, past June, so we've been uh, uh, contacting employers and the workers uh, that there will be. Uh, I mean, that was decided that there will be paid sick leave provisions coming January 1st, 2022. And then we also said that we would go through consultation, make sure they have their say, so that what model and how many days are sufficient. Because what we learned to me during uh, the pandemic was that the workers were going to work sick. And then they brought virus to, to the workplaces and they spread it to their colleagues. And those workers then went home, lived with their families and spread it to their communities and their families, hospitalization and, and, and deaths. And also those outbreaks caused businesses to shut down. And I must tell you, uh, close to 200 businesses in, in April and May alone in Fraser Health Authority were shut down for 10 days or long. So that is a very, very expensive situation to be in are not having paid sick leave provisions in, in, in workplaces. Okay, so that definitely is coming then. It just Is it a matter of deciding how many days is appropriate? How many days and what model we choose? Because we want to make sure, because, the, because workers, we, for sure, we know that they need paid sick leave provisions, so they shouldn't be forced to make a decision to go to work sick or stay home and lose pay. And we also are um, careful about uh, the businesses have gone through some tough time during pandemic as well. We want to make sure that the system is fair and the model that we choose is uh, that is going to work for all. Right. Is, have things changed, do you think, for workers? Is there more of a voice, do you think, right now for workers? Well, you know, I think uh, the workers, uh, their representatives always have a strong voice through VC Federation of Labor and unions and uh, but uh, you know the pandemic brought the uh, the the issues uh, to the surface of uh, of not having a paid sick leave provisions where workers were going to work sick and both workers and employers were concerned about their situation and what do we do what we learn from those lessons is what we are going through and decisions will be made um, based on what we learned during the during the consultations Right. I was reading a story uh, from Ontario, actually, where the Labour Minister in Ontario, the Ford government, says that he doesn't want Ontario to become a place where people burn out from endless work. So they're talking about legislation there that would give employees the, the right to disconnect, essentially, where, where the boss would have to tell people, here's our policy, and yes, you don't have to answer email after such and such a time. Is that something you can see BC doing? 
That's another, uh, you know, lesson we learned um, during the pandemic. Uh, the work um, practice has changed. Many workers were working from home. So when do they when do their work start? When does it, does it end? You know, they have they're working at home. How the health and safety provision apply to them? So all of that is new, and we are really uh, watching that. And uh, going forward, there are a number of things that we are considering, including gig workers. Uh, what do we do with those? Uh, because that part of the economy is also changing, and people are doing work differently, and uh, um, uh, precarious work is out there now. And I think you know we will be looking at um, digging deeper uh, to see how you know what is avail- what is out there, and and uh, and what kind of a protection those workers have. Because I believe in BC that all workers, regardless of their immigration status or um, part-time or full-time, they should all have the same protection and rights as any worker. Are you talking about like something like what they did in California, like changing the classification of gig workers? Like, How do you protect gig workers? Well, that's what we are doing right now. <clears throat> uh, we, would, we would be um, looking at uh, doing some research, uh, uh, perhaps looking at uh, appointing a panel to dig deeper, the people with, with expertise in this area. Because what we see uh, is... Uh, uh, is the skip the dishes and Uber drivers. I think those are the pace of, of that economy right now. But there is a lot more behind that. And there's all kind of uh, gig economy out there. And we want to know exactly what is happening and where those workers are, what kind of protection they have now, whether they are covered under our Employment Standard uh, Act or do we need to make some changes? So after we learn what is going on out there, then we'll make those decisions going forward. Right. So what kind of a timeline is that? Is that like the next thing you're going to tackle after paid sick leave? That is one thing on our agenda. Yes, next time. Okay. Sounds like you're going to be busy. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Thank you for having me. That's Harry Baines, who's the BC Minister of Labour, talking about sick leave provisions. Uh, That is coming in January. The question is, how many days of paid sick leave are employers going to have to offer their employees? Now, I was surprising, about half of BC employees don't have any kind of paid sick leave provision. We found out how devastating that is during the pandemic, right? When people feel like they still have to go to work, obviously, because they need to get paid. So that's going on. But this Ontario idea is also very interesting. This legislation in Ontario, we're talking about the Ford government here, a conservative government, would require employers with 25 or more employees to develop disconnecting from work policies, which could include expectations about response time for emails, encouraging employees to turn on out-of-office notifications when they're not working. They're saying it could be the first law of its kind in Canada. Now, is that something you would like your employer to develop? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. Are you answering emails like long after your workday is technically done? What's your employer's policy on that? Talk to me. You can also email uh, email me, but also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. So we know today is the deadline for healthcare workers in BC to have at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. We are talking healthcare across all different aspects of healthcare. And if they don't, well, they could risk losing their jobs. So today at the briefing that we'll have with Health Minister Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry, we know that will be a big topic of conversation. You'll hear that briefing live on the Jill Bennett Show. Right now, though, let's talk about how this could potentially impact healthcare facilities, including 
long-term care facilities. Joining us is Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Terry, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. So have you, have health care facilities, like long-term care facilities, have they seen the impact of this? Uh, yes, and in fact, uh, you know, the long-term care order was ahead of the acute care and community care order. So, in fact, today, uh, workers that uh, are not vaccinated uh, will essentially lose their jobs because they have to be fully vaccinated by uh, by today in order to continue to work or at least have started uh, their vaccine program before today. So if you're a long-term care worker and you held out and did not get vaccinated uh, today, you will likely receive a notice that you will uh, not be working there and uh, your termination notice will be served. So uh, we'll, we'll find out today just how many people that is. Um, we guesstimate that it's you know between 1,000 and 1,500 people around the province in different aspects of long-term care and assisted living. And that, of course, could impact some, uh, some of our uh, homes uh, quite dramatically. Yeah, it sounds like, will, will that impact perhaps some homes in certain health regions more than others? I suspect so. Uh, in Northern Health, most of the long-term care is provided by the health authority. There's a few contracted providers. Uh, so um, the impact on the health authority, uh, I know they were concerned about that, but I, I don't have exact numbers uh, for how many uh, people they're looking at uh, there. Uh, but in parts of the interior where we do have more contracted providers, uh, there are parts of the Caribou, for instance, where we know it is a concern, particularly in smaller uh, homes where they may have only 60 uh, long-term care beds. The the um, workforce is, is relatively small, so losing just a handful of people can impact uh, the operations. That must be a stressful time then for some of those care homes too, and especially for the employees who are fully vaccinated like that, if they lose employees, fellow employees, well, that means a lot of extra work. It does. Uh, and especially after, you know, nearly two years of uh, a, an amazingly high workload already, uh, you know, with the extra um, uh, procedures for infection prevention and control, uh, the, the stress and worry of, uh, of uh, falling ill at work. And, uh, you know, if you're in outbreak, Kasimi, then it's, it's double the work and um, all of those things go uh, much, much higher level. And so, you know, I think we'll be okay, uh, but uh, homes that uh, do go into outbreak or are in outbreak, those are the ones I worry about because uh, people are stretched to the limit there. And, um, you know, if, if they have to uh, double their workload because of an outbreak, uh, that's where we're really going right. to see the stress. But let's be clear here then, Terry, we, you do expect that some long-term care homes are going to lose employees at the end of the day. Yeah, not as many as we had feared. Fortunately, I think the way the uh, provincial health officer and the, the health ministry managed this uh, and, and responded to our concerns was uh, was very helpful. First of all, they extended the order to community care and acute care so the people couldn't just leave long-term care and walk across the street to work at the hospital. Then, then they allowed people that had started their vaccination program uh, to continue to work with added precautions uh, until they finish their, their second dose. Well, that's, that's done now. So we're really left with the hardcore uh, vaccine-resistant people who have decided they'd rather not work uh, at that job than to become vaccinated. And, of course, that's, that's much lower than people who had some concerns and some hesitancy, but 
you know, with some education and, um, and and discussion, they they decided to go ahead and get vaccinated. So, do you think this is going to be a similar situation for all sectors of healthcare? It'll be interesting, as you said, uh, in acute and community care today. You, you have to at least have one vaccine, and it's a much larger system. Um, so, I, I do think we'll see some some stress on the acute care and community care as well. Um, but hopefully, and I think we've seen this. You know, I've been following this issue in the United States. Um, most people do come around and take the vaccine. And so the, the real catastrophic drop-off of people uh, because they weren't vaccinated didn't happen. Good. But again, because, uh, because we are in such a precarious position in terms of nursing personnel and other allied health professionals, uh, even without a pandemic, uh, that any loss is, uh, is tough to manage. But it's the right thing to do because... You can't work if you're infected with the virus and and you're going to make other people sick and that's going to make the situation worse. So we really don't have much choice. This has to happen. And uh, but what we really need to do is work immediately on a health human resource strategy to address this problem. All right, Terry, thank you very much for your time on that today. Thank you, Simi. Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Today is the day. It is deadline day for all health care workers to have been vaccinated. So he said, we will start to learn after today, uh, well, where those jobs are going to need to be filled. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right now, though, we are going to talk about BC's Clean BC Roadmap. This was the big announcement from Premier John Horgan yesterday. And essentially, BC is making it more expensive to pollute, trying to move away from more fossil fuels. They're trying to meet 2030 emissions targets. Is this the way to do it? Joining us now to talk more about it is Sonia Snow, the BC Green Party leader. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Simi. What did you think of the plan? Now, there's some good policy initiatives in here, uh, but overall, what is lacking is a sense of emergency and urgency. And the problem that this government has with any climate plan is that it has created for itself a giant LNG hole in the middle of their plan. Uh, and by subsidizing LNG Canada, which is going to result in a very significant uptick in the amount of fracking, especially in northeast BC, and the methane emissions from that are going to be significant. Is there any discussion of LNG in this plan? The discussion of LNG in this plan is that government will work with industry to cap the emissions. Uh, This morning when I heard an interview with Minister Heyman and when he was asked directly, will there be more LNG Uh, allowed to come to Canada or to BC, he dodged the question and said that, again, we're going to work with industry and cap the emissions. The the issue with this, Simi, is countries and jurisdictions around the world are recognizing that we can't really have it both ways. We can't continue to have government subsidized oil and gas production and try to claim to be climate leaders there is a very important aspect to climate leadership, which is to invest in the transition 
away from fossil fuels to orient ourselves towards the production of clean energy and to ensure that we have resilient communities across BC. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what is lacking in this plan. You said there was no sense of urgency in this plan. How would we create that? What would you like to have seen? You know, I was thinking about it this morning. And, and one of the things that, again, isn't mentioned in the plan is is the role of nature-based solutions. So right now, our forests in British Columbia are net emitters of carbon. We have trees all over the province. And even before... Uh, you account for the forest fires, which obviously are enormous emitters. Our forests themselves, uh, because of our forest management logging practices, uh, are net emitters of carbon. We could look at how to orient all of our land and forests uh, towards ensuring that they become absorbers of carbon. Of course, protecting old growth is a big part of that, but also just looking to how we can change our practices so that our forests become allies uh, in the efforts against uh, climate change. The regenerative agriculture piece in this plan, I, I laud it. I think that that's a good example of of what we can be doing. But, it, you know, the, the main thing about this plan is in its title, the Roadmap to 2030. Um, who knows if this government will be in government in 2030? There's an election in three years. Uh, and this is what governments have typically done with climate action, which is we're going to set these targets out beyond our own mandate. And uh, so far, governments have not met any of the targets that they've met, including here in BC. We, we did not meet our 2020 targets. But clearly, British Columbians are on board in some ways, don't you think? I mean, we know that they can move up the deadline for having electric cars only in this province because BC leads all other mm-hmm. provinces in the purchase of electric cars. So in terms of the electrification mm-hmm. of the province, is that something that you think consumers are taking into their own hands? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think this is the other sort of lost opportunity right now. British Columbians have just come through Uh, an incredibly difficult and challenging year. And on the one hand, you know, we've seen what we're capable of doing when we make collective action the center of our efforts, and that's what we've done around COVID. And we've also seen the the very real impacts of climate change this summer with the the terrible forest fire season, the storm that just blew through yesterday, the droughts on Vancouver Island. And I think British Columbians are actually ready for, for real leadership. And Unfortunately, what this plan delivers is yet more incrementalism. And as I said yesterday, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, this would have been, uh, you know, bold steps. But today, where we're at, we actually need really urgent and very significant action. What bold step, if you could pick one, what bold step would you like to have seen them take? Well, I think the the most important one is the decision to take public funding, uh, taxpayer dollars out of the oil and gas industry and put that money into building a clean energy, resilient energy network across the province, working with First Nations, working with local communities. A number of stories I've heard uh, since becoming an MLA of communities that have come forward to this province with solar uh, solar energy generation plans, wind energy, geothermal energy, and the biggest impediment to them moving forward has been the province of BC Hydro. So orienting us towards clean energy distributed across the province and moving taxpayer money out of the oil and gas industry 
is the necessary step that would indicate true climate leadership. All right, well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. Always a pleasure. Sonia First Knows, leader of the BC Green Party, responding to what we heard yesterday is called the BC Clean the Clean BC Roadmap, introduced by Premier John Horgan, Environment Minister George Heyman. Uh, so making it more expensive to pollute, trying to move away from fossil fuels. But as you heard Sonia First Knows say, some big gaps there. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. Do you think the government needed to be bolder? As Sonia First Snow pointed out, are, are you comfortable with the steps they are taking with this plan? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Facebook has been blamed with peddling disinformation, conspiracy theories. A lot of that has led to a dangerous growth of extremist groups. A lot of the people who stormed the Capitol, Washington, D.C. on January the 6th had been talking about this for quite some time on Facebook. But you know what? Hate spreads in a lot of different ways, including in a more insidious way that people may not be aware of. And our Raji Silhal joins us now for more on that. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, Facebook's getting a bad rep, as it should. But there's another issue here with spreading hate and misinformation, as you say, that deserves a spotlight. So you know when you're on a website and you see all that, uh, what they call display advertising, that's all the annoying ads that are plastered everywhere. Those. It can be videos, it can be uh, banners on the side of the page. They're just all over the place. And whether you're being pitched a barbecue or tent or gardening tools or a pair of sneakers that you once clicked on, on, you know, another site entirely, no matter what site you go to, those same ads are there to greet you, right? They follow you, Mm -hmm. they follow your profile, and they're hoping that you're going to click. Well, we don't think about it. But when you see those ads, and even more so when you click on those ads, the advertiser gets paid. I talked to Claire Atkin. She's a Vancouverite who co-founded Check My Ads. And it's a company that officially goes uh, nonprofit actually tomorrow that works to educate and inform companies about exactly where their ads are ending up so that they do not end up unintentionally funding hate and misinformation. It's kind of complicated. So here's Claire to explain how it all works. Imagine you're on Facebook and you're just scrolling through friends and you see a link to a news article or what looks like a news article that says something like um, immigrants are flooding the border. Some, something that uh, is meant to incite fear and maybe scapegoat minorities. And it looks like news. So you get curious about that and you click it and you end up leaving Facebook and then going to an external site. And that external site, um, some examples could be the Post Millennial or the Daily Wire or the Gateway Pundit. These are disinformation publishers who create sort of clickbait, but actually I like to call it hate bait, where the weirder, the wilder it sounds when you're scrolling Facebook, the more likely you are to click. So you go to that website And then what happens is you read the article and you're like, whoa, this is some wild stuff. And as you're reading, the ads just keep popping up. And those display ads, their video, their their, um, static images, those display ads fund the publisher. So when you're reading a regular news article, if you're like on global news and you're reading that, there are display ads there too. Those display ads fund the news. When you're on disinformation or hate speech outlets, those ads fund disinformation and hate speech and they benefit the more you click. So they benefit the more they hate, the more they spread fear, the more they spread distrust. 
Oh, wow. So I can see why a lot of companies would not would want to make sure they know where their ads are going. Yeah. So just to like really hit this home for people, you take, for example, a pair of Nike runners, okay, that you're looking at online. Say when you're scrolling a site and you get enticed to click an inflammatory hate site, then that Nike ad follows you too, right? Suddenly Nike's funding that awful racist so-called news site, but they're really misinformation sites. So it's not that the ads are racist, right, Simi? And they're in fact often racially inclusive. Um, and when you click on that crazy site, then the ad then is funding the crazy site, right? So the ads are essentially, they're, they're following us around on the web and companies don't know that. So, uh, check my ads is trying to change that. For the last year and a half, we've worked with mostly fortune 500 companies and their agencies and, over and over again, we found that advertisers are surprised and horrified that their brands are being associated with racism, xenophobia, hate speech, and of course, disinformation. So they don't know. Most of the time, they don't know. They It's very hard to check the ads. Um, their ads are on sometimes, you know, half a million websites. So it, it ends up being obfuscated by just the amount of websites that they have to look at. Okay, that's a lot of work then for them. Yeah, it is. I mean, what Check My Ads is doing is super important, but I feel like what she's doing is also tidying a tiny, tiny part of what is a dirty system, right? It's like cleaning up needles at a drug dealer's house. Claire says that these ad tech companies need to be held accountable. And you know all that ad blocking tech that's out there, Simi? It actually doesn't work well. It's really hard to get that oh, tech I know. to work well. <laughs> no, so, yeah. It doesn't I've, stop all sorts of stuff from me for me still seeing all of that, yes. even though I've tried to do that. So, But if you are a company, I mean, obviously you think that, oh, I'm just paying for advertising. But, and I don't buy that tech companies can't do something about this because they have been able to create these systems to begin exactly. with. Yeah, so there is something that they can do. And what um, Check My Ads is doing is really interesting. They create, instead of exclusion lists, they create inclusion lists of allowable sites where a company might advertise. So they figure that part out for the company, and then they make sure that they don't get hit with these, uh, you know, accidentally funding something that's uh, hateful and that kind of thing. You know, in the news right now, we're hearing about Facebook announcing this crazy rebranding of itself as a metaverse uh, while it faces all this scrutiny over how it spreads misinformation and all the negative effects on users, the rest of us need to be so much more uh, vigilant and rigorous in how we consume media and to really like question uh, all these companies like Facebook that we have been taking for granted for too long. They're not working in our favor. No, they want to sell you something or they want to sell information about you. (laughs) They are not there to do you a favor on anything. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So this kind of company, Check My Ads, is is doing a little part of what is, I mean, a seemingly daunting task, right? I love this idea. Okay. So I would imagine there's other companies out there too, right? Um, other companies that are doing similar things? Yes. Yeah, there are. There are. But like Claire uh, Atkin mentions in, in that clip that I had just played, it's really hard. It's very difficult terrain um, to try to you know, make a succinct app, like an ad blocker type of thing that works perfectly. So it does require the human element in there. But ultimately, they are what they're trying to do is to create accountability online, because we don't have regulating bodies that are interfering to do this kind of thing. Uh, Not for profits like hers have to get in there and 
start uh, trying to make some headway. Well, they're doing good work. All right. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks so much, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal there. Now, if people want more information on how you can defund hate speech and disinformation online, you can check out branded.checkmyads.org. This is Mornings with Simi. I think some people are ready to start partying. partying. We know capacity limits are about to be lifted. I've got a full house for the Vancouver Canucks, you know, playing their first home game tonight against Minnesota Wild. And that means if you're planning an event, maybe a wedding or something like that, you can have more people than you could have even a month ago. So how is that impacting event coordinators? Let's find out. Julie Connolly joins us now, owner of Carte Blanche Events. Julie, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. How's business? <laughs> How's business? Well, it's up and down. Uh, at the beginning of the summer when they told us they were going to, that we hoped to open up and go back to normal by the fall, the phone started ringing off the hook and our industry was going from zero to 100 in the blink of an eye and writing proposal after proposal to try and fill the calendar. And now that we still can't dance, and even though we're double vaccinated, we're not actually back to normal, many of those events have cancelled. So all of that work has been for not, unfortunately. Oh, no. So how? when were the cancellations coming in? Was that this week when the final say came on the no dancing? So uh, they, they come in sporadically. I started getting some sort of hesitations right before booking, not sure that everything was going to be okay. Uh, quite a number of events that nor- well, many, many events that would normally happen just never even um, got off the ground, really. And right now, I still have another event that is holding on for dear hope, waiting to find out if there's a chance that they will lift the dancing restrictions by the end of the week. We were told October 24th, 25th would be the day we would find out. We found out that they would only be lifting the um, capacity restrictions, which doesn't help the live event industry, unfortunately. It's great for the venues, and I'm very happy for them. But for us to do our big shows, we really do need dancing. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's where I'm I'm speaking to you today in the hopes that there's a chance that they'll let us know at least a date for when it will happen. So we have the possibility of saving the season. And what kind of events are we talking about here? Well, you know, a lot of holiday parties, of course. Um, there's, you know, I don't specialize in weddings, but I, I know, for example, that my cousin had a wedding, or sorry, an engagement party booked on the weekend outdoors and had to cancel due to, wet, due to weather. So, you know, it's, it's weddings. It's also, um, you know, I have a, a large significant birthday party coming up and and that's not sure if they're going to move forward so it's all sorts of holiday gatherings people celebrate for many reasons right and so the dancing that that idea of the mingling but you can mingle you can rarely go from table to table but you can't dance and that's enough do you think to scare people off it certainly is. If you are booking a live band for your event, and um, you know, as many people normally would be, then most certainly you're not moving forward. You may have a dinner in a restaurant instead and pare it down, and there are other options. But in terms of what the live event industry is used to doing, producing fabulous big galas, um, you know, for corporations and for for even, like I said, large family gatherings and that kind of thing, 
they won't move forward with right. that dancing, unfortunately. So, Julie, not even until, say, 2022 or any organizations looking ahead and booking those big, I was thinking about, like, even charitable galas for 2022? Oh, sure. They're, they're absolutely booking and moving forward, just like our holiday events did for this season. We all moved forward. We planned. And so the spring has got all kinds of live events on the books, and, and we're all hopeful that those will move forward. But as we've learned in the pandemic, there are certainly no guarantees. And, and what happens next year might benefit um, income next year. But for this year, this is a beleaguered industry, desperately trying to recover from really hard times and losing the holiday season that we've already worked on for months. Let's be clear, these events are planned and done. Um, losing them, it'll be another another devastating blow, unfortunately. Are there any supports left for your industry? I know a lot of business supports ended on Sunday. Tourism and hospitality are supposed to still be getting targeted programs. Does that help you at all? You know, that's an excellent question. And as I understand it, the supports that are still in place are things like um, wage subsidies, and rent subsidies that are helping out the tourism industry and hospitality industry. But the live event industry has a lot of independent contractors, gig workers, if you will. And so they're not, they don't have a team of people or even rent. Many of us work from home. And so our subsidies are actually gone. And the hard thing is, we lost a lot of really great players in the city who've already left the industry. Audiovisual companies are struggling so hard to find technicians because they got other jobs. We will be, you know, moving and pivoting and losing more people out of this industry if we if we can't dance this this um, season. I would make a plea to please figure out a way to help the live event industry not leave the business. It's tough. I imagine it is tough. So, Julie, what? What do you expect to hear? What are you hoping to hear this week? So my my plea is for the BC government to let us know if they plan to lift the, the ban on dancing. The message so far has been that they hope to be able to do it in the coming months or coming up, um, but that won't help us. If they decide mid-November or the beginning of December that we can all go back to dancing and we can celebrate this holiday season, you know, that'll be great for my family dinner. That'll be wonderful. But it's not going to help the live event industry and all of the ancillary businesses that will be affected by this industry. So for you to make that work, for those events this holiday season to go ahead, what would be the cutoff that you need to know? Would it be this week? Well, yes. I have a message from one venue saying that we need to decide by Friday whether we will be moving forward or not. And if we cancel after Friday, we'll lose the deposit. So it's a risk that a lot of clients won't be willing to take and may just have to go ahead and cancel if we don't find out by Friday. All right, we'll see what happens. I know there's a briefing today. I'm sure they'll get asked about this. Julie, thank you for your time. I hope so. Thank you so much. That's Julie Connolly, owner of Carte Blanche Events. As you heard, there are some critical days ahead. This week, as a matter of fact, 
for companies like hers who are hoping to host events this holiday season. I mean, if you can go to a Canucks game, if you can go to a Lions game, Whitecaps game, if you can go to these big events as long as you're fully vaccinated and you're sitting there with you know thousands upon thousands of people, they're wondering why can't a holiday event take place? So yeah, there might be some dancing and people gathering, but where are we drawing the line here? And is this a bit of a ridiculous line on this? Companies like hers need to know 